If you like Inglorious Trexperts, you'll love the 430 Movie, available wherever you listen to podcasts or at 430movie.com. Join us every week as we program exclusive fantasy theme weeks full of the movies you grew up on. Boogie Down with reformed double girl Chase Masterson as she takes you inside Discovery every week on the all-new Star Trek podcast, Disco Nights. From the producers of Inglorious Trexperts, wherever you listen to the 430 movie. And keep looking at the stars. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, co-host of Inglorious Trexperts. And if you're a fan of Battlestar Galactica, and who isn't, check out my new oral history of Battlestar Galactica with Ed Gross, So Say We All. It spans the complete history of Battlestar Galactica from the 1978 series to Ronald Moore's brilliant reinvention and even Galactica 1980. Available from Tor Books wherever books are sold. Captain's Log Supplemental. This is Mark A. Altman of Inglorious Trexperts. I'm here with Darren Doctorman and Robert Meyer Burnett. And we're here to preview uh, an exciting new podcast coming to the Electric Search Network The Best Movies Never Made. Never Made. Never Made. These Why are... weren't they made? Well, that's <laughs> what we're going to find out, right? So, in the coming weeks, uh, Steve Scarlatta, who produced the wonderful Joe Dorosky's Dune documentary, and Josh Miller, writer of the new uh, Sonic the Hedgehog film, will be taking people on a tour of all these great unproduced classics and maybe some non classics. Um, and uh, we thought it'd be only appropriate if the Trexpers got together because Star Trek's had its fair share of unproduced indeed uh, quite a bit uh, never best, I don't know if they'd be best movies never made for but, better or uh, worse yeah well you'll find out about some of them in this so we we record a very special episode of uh, Inglorious Trexperts about little Johnny who uh, is having <laughs> health problems no. <laughs> we record a very special episode of, of the Inglori- trek in the plastic bubble that's right <laughs> and, uh, and 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 in, in, in this episode you're about to listen to um, we talk about the sort of Early history of unproduced Star Trek projects includes the Cattleman, Gene Roddenberry's uh, abandoned. It was one of the first attempts to do a Star Trek movie in the early 70s. Uh, Planet of the Titans, Phil Kaufman's uh, uh, epic Star Trek adventure that never was. And uh, uh, most notably, uh, the unproduced uh, Star Trek motion picture sequel that Gene Roddenberry wrote that uh, apocryphally... uh, it has been passed down to the generations as the one in which Spock has to kill JFK, which is not quite true. Um, <laughs> but we we, t- we 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 talk all about it. Um, tell you a little bit about the story. Um, share some interesting tidbits, and we even talk a little bit about uh, Return to Genesis, which morphed into uh, Star Trek Three. Right. And we'll be talking about Star Trek Three more this season on Inglorious Trexperts as uh, Star Trek Three: uh, The Search for Spock celebrates its 35th anniversary uh, this year, <laughs> which we're not really going to pay much attention to. Well, I've had enough of you, Star we, Trek Three. We, <laughs> we hope you enjoy this uh, half as much as we did making it, because that would mean that we would have enjoyed it twice as much as you will listening to it. What? <laughs> I have no. Well, listen, you know, the great news is, is that Steve and Josh are wonderful hosts who will be wildly entertaining. Um, I know uh, some of the great projects they're talking about in the future is uh, Fred Decker's uh, um, Godzilla. Uh, one of my favorite episodes is on ET2, um, the aborted ET2 project, which is just uh, will blow your mind if you know nothing about uh, uh, the script that was developed for ET2. It's it's an it's a unbelievable story. Adam Rifkin's Master of the Universe and 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 many more. So they're going to have some wonderful guests uh, in studio, directors, writers, uh, filmmakers. I'm hoping, I, I just talked to them, Rob, and said that they should uh, uh, have you on the show and, and I guess me by extension for uh, Fran Enterprise 2, The Wrath of Shatner. 
That, that, that would be uh, a great story. I and, still have hope, Mark. No, no, and I'm not <laughs> saying it. And I, I, what I'm saying, though, is the story of at least that version of the movie not getting made. We can talk about the Leonard Nimoy subplot. Yes. Uh, since, you know, that's obviously not going to come to fruition. Uh, so uh, maybe that's something we can drop in on the, the on the boys and Love to do share those stories in coming, coming weeks. Uh, uh, the best movies never made uh, will um, premiere uh, wherever you listen to podcasts and air uh, every other Monday. Uh, and uh, if uh, popular demand uh, allows it, then maybe every Monday. But right now, uh, it's going to be every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts, with Steven Scarlatta and Josh Miller. And uh, you can find out uh, uh, more uh, about this is a wonderful show by, by listening. But uh, for now, I hope you'll enjoy, uh, as Darren and Robert and myself, muse excitedly about the Treks not taken, uh, the, 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 the best Trek movies never made. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Welcome to another uh, installment of our show, Inglorious Trexperts. You know that because you're actually tuned into it. Um, and uh, we're really excited because today we're going to be talking about the Trex that never were. What? These were um, uh, ideas, scripts, treatments that never saw the light of a projector bulb or a TV screen, but had made it into the development process. And we're going to unearth some really great gems from the history of Star Trek. And to help us do that, we're very lucky to once again be joined by two of my favorite guests. Uh, first, Robert Meyer Burnett. You know him as the um, writer, uh, di- produce, uh, the director, editor of uh, Free Enterprise, uh, and uh, also now launching on YouTube the new uh, Burnett work, which will debut his new show, Observations. Thank you, Mark. It's good uh, good to be back here. I, I I've come to love doing this podcast. Aww, it's one of my favorite hours of the week. Ah, <laughs> that's nice. Well, hopefully the audience feels the same way when they listen to us. Um, and then of course we're once again joined by uh, Michael Sussman. Michael co-created and executive produced the uh, hit crime drama Perception, which ran for three seasons on TNT. He got his start in TV as an executive story editor on Star Trek Voyager, and later became a writer and producer on Enterprise. And all told, has a writing credit on more than 30 episodes of Star Trek. So uh, that's almost uh, half of the original series. Um, welcome, welcome back, Thank Michael you. Sussman. It's great to be here. And, uh, you know, today, and I'm sure you had a couple of examples of that in your writer's room on Voyager Enterprise, scripts maybe that you were very passionate about um, or you heard pitches that were really great that never got made. Uh, yeah, I suppose. I, I mean, it kind of fades uh, over time. I Ultimately, you know, we were doing 26 episodes a season when I started out, and it seemed like if there was a good idea, ultimately it, it got it made. made. It <laughs> form, may not have been made well, uh, but they, yeah, th- those shows were, were uh, trains rolling forward, and we just, we just needed to sacrifice stories to uh, keep that train moving. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you, you you know, at the time, back when I was doing these articles for Cinefantastic and talking to the, uh, the writers on... Um, Next Generation, especially the seventh season, it seemed like there were so many really intriguing nuggets that came close to happening that never did, including uh, a Chekhov episode where it was going to... Chekhov. 
uh, you know, have uh, Chekhov on The Next Generation, which uh, they felt was just going to the original series cast one too many times. And maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong. And of I, course- was, I was very disappointed that they didn't get around to that, uh, Mark. Um, I, I really wanted to come back and, uh, and be on The Next Generation. See, what they really should have done was a sequel to The Infinite Vulcan, Walter. I think that would have been even greater because it probably would have gotten more money. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Michael, we talked about this on the Mirror episode, but um, uh, Enterprise had also um, uh, potentially done a, a Mirror Kirk story, uh, which didn't happen when uh, it couldn't, t- couldn't come to financial terms with Shatner. That's right. Yeah. We were uh, hoping to, to get uh, Bill, if I may call him Bill, having never met him. He, um, he, he, he would like to call him Bill. <laughs> Right, Rob? And Mr. Shatner. <laughs> Call me Bill. Uh, I'm jealous of you guys. I haven't gotten to, to work with him so closely. Um, yeah, no, there, there was a, a great interest in bringing him uh, on board for season four, and there were a couple stories in the offing. There was, uh, because I had a Kirk story as well that I pitched. It had nothing to do with the Mirror Universe. And uh, and so they were sitting down, Rick and Brandon, and I think Manny were, went out to dinner or lunch with, with uh, Bill, and I had pitched a, a story to Rick, uh, wherein we would reveal that uh, there was a character on on Archer's Enterprise this whole time, the ship's chef, who had been talked about but never seen, who would actually be played by Shatner. Because one of Shatner's conditions was that he he wanted to be on the show, but he didn't want to play James T. Kirk. Right. So I thought, okay, he's our chef, and he's kind of been on the ship the whole time. And we'd find out later he's like an ancestor of Kirk. And there's, uh, it's been a long time since I even looked at the pitch, but. Uh, the idea was that Chef and Archer would have to go into the 23rd century where Chef would now have to Im- impersonate Kirk at some <laughs> pivotal point in history. So it was kind of a comedy, but you know, also you know, huge stakes, uh, but, but more of a comedy than anything else. And they pitched it to Bill, and he was just, you know, I got my own idea. And he had a mere, he had a mere universe idea that he had cooked up with uh, Judy and Garvey, Stevens. Stevens. Yeah, yeah. And so then that was the one. And then we just couldn't get the money to work out. Right, right. Oh, that's too bad. That, that sounds like a, a ton of fun. <laughs> I, I, he would have been delightful in that. I, I think he would have, you know, as the dun, chef. Dun, 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 dun. You see, if you, <laughs> if you would only put him on a horse, he probably would have done it. That's right. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's great. Um, so, you know, some of these projects, these, these projects are, are legendary um, that never got made. Uh, it goes back, interestingly and ironically, um, to uh, 1968, where Roddenberry was first thinking about a Star Trek movie. A lot of people don't know this, but he um, was in the very early stages of talking about a Star Trek prequel mm. and wanting to see how the cast, uh, the crew of the Enterprise, first came together. And right. poor Walter wasn't a part of it. Right. Um, again, you know, and uh, it would have been how the crew met. It's it's really funny because later on, when you hear him sort of lambasting Har Bennett's uh, Starfleet Academy, right. the Academy years, you know, he says, "Oh, you know, you can never, you can't do that," you know. Uh, but Roddenberry had the same idea many, many years b- before, and uh, you know, it's interesting that eventually J.J. Abrams would go on to do something very similar uh, with his uh, film in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. 2009. They in fact, call it Star Trek. He shot in 2008, though. <laughs> so Star Trek 2009. Yes. Um, and then uh, the next uh, movie was uh, the idea that uh, Roddenberry was involved with was after the show was canceled. Uh, he had had a pitch called um, uh, The Cattleman, 
And the Cattleman was an idea he came up with in 1973 that he was going to partner with Herb Solo to produce as a low-budget Star Trek movie. It was about a, a race of sentient cows that were being slaughtered by futuristic ranchers, right. and the Enterprise has to uh, get involved. And it was it was sort of an allegory metaphor writ large. I mean, it wasn't subtle. It was pretty much on the nose. And ultimately, they couldn't, couldn't come to terms on uh, uh, Gene's writing fees. Uh, he felt that they were, you know, not offering him enough money, and so were the cows white on one side, black on the other. <laughs> they had red, <laughs> white spots on one side and <laughs> black spots on the other, and uh, and so that um, it was the last time him and Herb Solo ever talked. They had a falling out over wow. the cow, and um, and he, you know, he had been the executive at, at Desilu who was involved with helping to sell Star Trek originally. Um, so you know that that sort of seemed like the end of Star Trek, but of course it was really only the beginning. Indeed. Yeah. Um, I mean, we get to... What year was that? 73? Yeah, that was like 73, right around the time that the animated series was was happening. And then with the animated series, that was a chance for him to keep Star Trek alive. And and after that was canceled... Because the animated series did get pretty good ratings, certainly for Saturday morning. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is Filmation, you know, Lou Scheimer particularly... Uh, had wanted to see that show aired at night because they mm-hmm. felt that it was a more adult show that it could have aired during primetime. Absolutely. And, uh, and I agree with that. Yeah, and I didn't... Uh, I think um, when Nickelodeon repeated it many years later, I think they were airing it in the... Uh, they certainly weren't airing it in the morning. I think they were airing it in the afternoon or the mm-hmm. evening. Uh, but it really isn't until um, a little later in that decade that uh, the rumors and the talk of a Star Trek movie becomes more serious you know, it's basically a $3 million movie. And, um, uh, Gene was de- developing several concepts. Uh, most famous, of course, is the God thing. Right. Now, the God thing was uh, it was an idea that would come back in many iterations subs- uh, subsequently. It shared a lot of the DNA of what would eventually become Star Trek the motion picture. Right. In this case, an alien entity comes back to Earth claiming to be God. And uh, it takes many shapes. And the most famous thing about this script or this concept was uh, it uh, has a climactic fight between uh, Captain Kirk and Jesus on the bridge of the Enterprise. Yeah. And I can only imagine how audiences would have reacted (laughs) (laughs) to uh, that uh, confrontation. Well, especially since Jesus was apparently using the same flying kick that Shatner did. Which was startling. <laughs> you know, it's funny because there's this, you know, Jesus or the the, the, the God thing uh, right. transforms into various visages of different deities. Right. And it's the end of Star Trek V. Yeah. And Gene ha- notoriously hated Star Trek V and hated well, everything sure. to do with Star well, Trek V. Well, he, he hated Star Trek V for the same reasons that he hated the idea for the prequel because he didn't get to do it. Yeah. That's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think there's something to be said for that. And so, you know, he was pitching this thing, the God thing, to Barry Diller, who was a devout Catholic and mm-hmm. who was running a studio at the time. So, of course, that went nowhere. Right. And there were a few other um, scripts uh, involving uh, black holes, and, and, and he was working with John Povel for a time. And, you know, it was about that time that um, Paramount decides to bring in Phil Kaufman, who just had a success uh, with White Dawn, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Chris Bryant and, and Alan... Alan, who was it? Alan, yeah, Chris Bryant uh, and Alan, uh, mm-hmm. and that guy. Well, you wrote the book. I did write it. No more cracks <laughs> about the book. Uh, well, you know, I, I don't want to have to go to the book, but I guess I will because um, 
We can cut it, this part out, right? No, we can't. We, <laughs> no, you know, it's all it's, real. It's, it's, all, we, it's all a great plug for the book because, you know, <laughs> even the Trexperts are stumped until they go to the book. Um, where is this guy? John Poville, Richard, talk amongst yourselves while I look for uh, look for this. They didn't. The two of them didn't have a good time writing, though. No, no, they had just done. Uh, they had a lot of acclaim for um, the uh, the great. Uh, don't 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 look now. Right. Um, and which was uh, obviously it was a Paramount film. Yeah, Paramount released it, and uh, we're getting a lot of attention. And of course, you know, uh, Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie were being, you know, acclaimed for that. And uh, so, what's the next step in a long and successful and prosperous career? Star Trek movie. Um, <laughs> and, that used uh, to be the case. I'm not so sure it is anymore. But I would love to have seen a Star Trek movie directed by Nick Rogue. Well, I would love to see a Star Trek movie directed by Phil Kaufman. Phil Kaufman's Star Trek movie would have been very, very interesting. Alan yep. Scott. Yes, yes, yes. Alan Green Scott. Lantern. Of Earth Two, and you know, I'm going to read. I'm going to read his quote here since I bothered to go to that page. This is from uh, Mayan Ed Gross's book, The Fifty Year Mission. Alan Scott is Volume One. Volume One, yes, is, is is telling a story. Once we started working on the project with Phil, we were told that they had no deal with William Shatner. So, in fact, the first story draft we did eliminated Captain Kirk. Good idea. It was only a month or six weeks in that we were called in and told that Kirk was now aboard and should be one of the leading characters. So all of that work was wasted. At that time, Chris Bryant and I would sit in a room and talk about story ideas and notions and talk them through with either Phil or Gene. Yeah, you know, uh, the funny thing is at that time... It's like Sulu and Chekhov being told that we're going to Starbase 12. No, we're going to Vulcan. No, we're going back to Starbase 12. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly that. <laughs> you know, but this was a time where there hadn't been a huge movie where you take in the stars of a TV show right. and put them in movies. So there were all kinds of rumors that Paramount wanted to recast. I mean, they were seriously talking about, like, Robert Redford as Captain Kirk and, you know, this kind of, you know, nonsense. Uh, and, and so there was a feeling that when Shatner wanted too much money, well, what do we need Shatner for? Yeah. We're going to pay that much money. We're going to get a movie star. We're going to get a movie star. And uh, Phil uh, Kaufman, really, who was not a Star Trek fan, was very intrigued with Leonard Nimoy. From day one, he loved Leonard and well, loved and they the worked together, Spock. They, they worked together in 78 on uh, Invasion, of the Invasion of Body Snatchers. In which he plays basically Spock. Pretty much. Because, you know, Kibner is, Pod uh, Spock. is, is you know, this therapist who, who sort of gets uh, people to react with strong emotions. And then when he's potified, he's turned into Spock. He's gone <laughs> through the colon arc. He's been purged of all of remaining emotion. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, so th this whole Planet of the Titans thing is, I mean, you guys, you've heard the story to amuse your captain, what Planet of the Titans is about? Well, sure. It's, it's kind of like what battle, the second Battlestar Galactica series became. I mean, in the whole stretch of it, how it winds up. Well, it's true. I mean, because basically the premise is that Captain Kirk has disappeared and they're trying to find Spock's leading this mission to try and find Kirk. Um, and he's currently suffering from Ponfar and being treated by this psychotherapist or something, <laughs> you know, to help Also him. played by Leonard Nemo. I mean, there was talk about this being like an R-rated movie. I right. mean, you know, Phil Kaufman yeah, for, was like... for adults. For, for, for adults. You know, he was looking at 2001 as the touchstone. Right. I mean, this was an era, you know, Star Wars was long, it still hadn't come out. Sure. You know, it was a while from coming out. Um, and uh, so they find Kirk on this planet like these Neanderthals. And, and uh, uh, again, it deals with a, a black hole and not to, not to give away too much. But basically, they're, uh, <laughs> you know, by the end of it, the, the Enterprise is thrown through a black hole and bequeaths uh, this ancient man with fire. 
and it turns out that they're on Earth and that they are the titans of ancient myth. Yeah. It's it's just insane. You know, Planet of the Titans is is the, the you know the, the the Enterprise crew are the Titans who are giving the Signans uh, fire. I mean, and uh, it's it's insane. And, and 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 no one had to be tied to a rock or anything. No, it was Quest for Fire. I mean, it was like. And Jerry Eisenberg, who talks about this, we were never talking about sequels or franchises. It was going to be a one-off. Yeah. And, um, they, you know, but it's funny because the one person who was against this was Gene. kept yeah. saying, go back to the TV series. You know, you're getting too far away. You're reinventing the wheel. And Phil Kaufman wanted to reinvent the wheel. Right. And Gene didn't. To his credit, he knew what he had. They were watching too much science fiction of the day. I mean, it sounds right. like 2001 mixed with Zardoz. Zardoz mixed right. with, I mean, that idea is, is I understand that they were trying to make a It's a the movie. big crazy 70s, baby. Yeah, and that's the, you know, you know the album covers, prog mm-hmm. rock. Plus, you know, could you imagine that me- meeting with Leonard? It's like, we want to do something really deep and cerebral, and Shatner's not going to be in it. It's really going to be ah, a spot. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the greatest movie ever. <laughs> but... Um, uh, you know, and 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 it, it's funny. I know when Ed was interviewing Phil Kaufman for um, our book, he said, "You know, would you be able to share, you know, your your script with us?" And he said, "No, it's something I'm going to hold on to. No one's ever going to see it." And I don't know if it was because of embarrassment or because he really just, you know, didn't didn't want to share it, keep it to himself. But apparently, I've heard that the earlier draft, because Phil Kaufman did a rewrite before it was canceled, mm-hmm. the Bryant Scott draft. Right was recently unearthed by a certain party. That's not me, but <laughs> I I would very much like to get a hold of that. So if anyone is out there within the sound of my voice and has a planet <laughs> of uh, the Titan script, you can follow us on Inglorious Treks on uh, Twitter and, and reach out to me. Um, Slide into Mark's DMs. Because I would really like to get my hands on that. Uh, and may we see this storage facility? <laughs> well, what I found interesting about that is, is you know, they Ken Adam was hired. Yes, mm-hmm. great point. One of the great production designers from the Bond franchise, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then Ralph McQuarrie, pre-Star Wars, yes. was designing. That, and, and hence, it, that it just, wasn't pre-Star Wars. It wasn't pre-Star no. Wars. Because remember, Ralph McQuarrie worked on Star Wars in 75. Oh, okay. Okay. So it was after that. So it was after that. Right. Pre-Star Wars release, but post-Star right. Wars, right. Right. his work for Lucas. And then yeah. that, that Planet of the Titans resonates even today with Discovery. Yes, very much so. I'm glad you said that because they were very influenced, particularly Brian Fuller was very influenced by that early Macquarie design aesthetic and applied it to anybody who was at that first panel um, for Deep Space Nine saw that initial design for the Discovery, which was very much in line with what Ralph Macquarie had designed low those many years ago. And I, I love it. I think it's great. It's inter- I do too, and it, but it's interesting how once Brian left... They went in and changed that design quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like uh, you know, because you, like you said, Ken Adam and Phil Kaufman became very close with Ken Adam, mm-hmm. uh, the James Bond production designer who was responsible, and Kubrick uh, designed the War Room and yeah. Doctor Strangelove and Barry Lyndon and just the freaking genius. And then you know, if you look at what he did on Spy Love Me and Moonraker and Doctor No, I mean, he's one of the great production designers who ever lived. I got to meet him on uh, on Adam's Family too. Oh really? Yeah, I got to I got to spend uh, you know a couple days uh, around him and and you know he's walking around smoking his cigar, walking around the art department, and uh, he he's really he was really a great person and absolutely an amazing designer. But uh, 
he had uh, he had lots of stories that uh, probably shouldn't be shared. But well, the, he's passed away. Down, we're all the same now. So maybe you can. Um, we're all so you can tell someday. us one. Someday. Oh man, someday. come on! <laughs> no, when just, is the uh, statute of limitations on this stuff? Uh, probably when I'm long gone. Well, he's also whenever you whenever he shows up on on special features on on movies, DVDs or or Blu-rays. Yeah, he's always a kick in the pants. Oh, he's so funny with he's, that thick German accent. He's and, just incredible. Yeah, it was it was great. And then I told Cubby, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, you know what, what else is great about him? And I just I just love the whole um, Ken Adam uh, Gestalt because he was the only German to fly fighter jets for the British right during World War Two right. You know, he 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 saw what was going on in Germany. He came to England and he he flew fighters for the British against. He was, I think, the only. German. And he did not come forward in time and crash land on a uh, freeway in Los Angeles. No, 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 no. <laughs> By the way, did you hear that 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 plane was not a Nazi plane? It was, it was an American it was a, trainer. Yeah, that it was, was repainted. Yeah, to look. Yeah, yeah, because it, had, it was yeah, right. It was an American plane, but it was painted with Nazi insignia. Right for like air shows, or... for patterns of force fan That's right. film. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Fifteen minute long patterns of force yeah. fan film. It was this great scene, you know, with John Gill flying. Right. Uh, <laughs> Melicon was attacking Los Angeles. So, <laughs> before we get too far off track, how what happened with Planet of the Titans? Well, what happened is really interesting. So um, they did a draft which nobody was happy with, and Gene was very much fighting the whole way. You know, he was a producer on it, but he wasn't happy about it. This is what the studio wanted. He didn't want it. And so then Phil starts to do a rewrite. So he's finishing the rewrite of the Bryant-Scott script, and um, it's it's funny because they've been on the movie for, um, I think, seven months, and uh, the day they were fired, they sent a... Uh, a memo out to everybody said we weren't here to see the baby to term but we think we gave it a good start it's, it's almost That's very funny. similar to the ending <laughs> of Star Trek the motion picture and uh, I wish I never thought about that but yeah. I could have influenced that line in Star Trek the motion picture and um, and and so they said we, we wish you the best of luck and so Phil starts rewriting it um, and the day he's about to turn it into the studio he gets a call from the Paramount Brass that said they're canceling the movie because there's no future in science fiction. Right. That's literally what they tell him. There's no future in science fiction. So I saw no future. He, who's very good friends with George Lucas, <laughs> had spent time on the set of Star Wars, and he was one of the few people who actually thought this thing was going to be a massive hit. Because even George's closest friends, like De Palma and a lot of the the, the, right. the brats, the film brats, only Spielberg thought it only was Spielberg be and and apparently Phil Kaufman, Phil Kaufman thought that this thing was going to amount to something. So it was canceled about two or three weeks before Star Wars opens. Mm-hmm. And that's when they start developing in the image or For those of you who two. don't know, Phil Kaufman also is a credited uh, co-story on Raiders of the Lost Ark because it was his idea that there was a an adventure going after the Lost Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, and then, you know, Phil is a fantastic director in his own right. Uh, he did, you know, sometimes we assume that everybody just knows all this stuff, but The Right Stuff, mm-hmm. Unbearable Lightness of Being, Henry and June. The Wanderers. The Wanderers. Yeah. I mean, he's just such a uh, such a talent. And I think that's why it's so heartbreaking that he never got to, it would have been the same thing as Sam Mendes doing Bond, you know, when he came and did Skyfall. Hopefully like, not. To have a director, <laughs> when, he, <laughs> he, when you have a director like Phil Kaufman, you know, coming to Star Trek, uh, to, to have this auteur vision, you know, meet this friend. It would have been very, whether it would have been good or bad, who knows? Right. But it could have been, it would have been interesting. It would right. not have been boring. It, and it would not have been, uh, 
you know, derivative, right. uh, you know, so, so, so anyway, so he, he's off the project. Now, uh, Paramount decides they're going to launch a fourth network. Right. Because there are only three networks at the time. They're going to launch the Hughes network. And the cornerstone of this new network, imagine that, is going to be Star Trek. Right. Star Trek Two. they were calling it. Star Trek Two, And so they start developing a TV series. They hire Harold Livingston, uh, who had done uh, a, a robot show uh, with uh, Ernest Borgnine. Right. Um, uh, the robot show. What was that show that he did? Harold Livingston did not not Holmes and Yo-Yo. No, no, it was, it was a different that one. here. Well, you know what? I'm going to go to the IMDb for this <laughs> because I don't remember. Didn't because... he do the uh, the Gemini Man? Nope, nope. That was uh, you're confusing him with someone else. You're confusing the stars with heaven. Let's see, uh, Harold Livingston, who uh, one of the great curmudgeons in the history of Star Trek. Oh, we we got to interview him on uh, the Star Trek the Motion Picture uh, DVD, and he was irascible. Yeah. If any word applied, that one does. Um, he <laughs> he really, you know, he, the the vitriol that he had for Gene Roddenberry, uh, at least back then, um, was uh, amazing to see, and it was still, you know, very very uh, strong twenty years later. Well, it's funny because I interviewed him probably ten years after you did mm-hmm. for Fifty Year Mission, uh, and gave one of the great interviews, you know, for the book. And uh, he was still angry, but you know his anger was even greater at the guy who created Fantasy Island because ABC uh-huh. was convinced when they launched Fantasy Island that the thing was going to be a fucking dis- disaster. And uh, so they hire him. Iron Spelling begs him to come mm-hmm. and do the show, and uh, you know give him a parking lot, an office, and says, you know, don't worry about this guy created it. He's on the way out. He has office in Burbank. You're here on the lot. You'll never see each other. When his contract's up in two weeks, you know he's out of here, and it's your show. Well, sure enough, it premieres on ABC, that mm-hmm. huge, huge, huge hit. Harold Livingston shows up the next day. His office is empty. Mm-hmm. He's like, what? He goes out. His stuff is on the, on the, on the outside the bungalow, all packed up, and he's been fired because now it's been validated, yeah. and they're sticking with the other guy, and, uh-huh. Harold, and Harold's out. So he said he ended up getting offered another show from Spelling, but it was really awful. Um, the show was Ernest Borgnine in Future Cop, 1976. Future Cop. Future oh Cop. Gosh. And a veteran patrol officer gets an android for a partner. So it was Holmes and Yo-Yo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Listen to this cast. Michael Shannon. Not that Michael Shannon. <laughs> Michael Shannon and, and, at age 10. And uh, John Amos. Wow. That's great. And Herbert Nelson is Captain Skaggs. Well, with a credit like that, why wouldn't he do Star Trek? Yeah, so he gets offered Star Trek, and him and Ron Berry, at first, it was a love fest. Sure. Because they had a lot in common, because um, Livingston used to fly jets for the Israeli army right. during, during the, the War for Independence, <laughs> and um, and and he had a very similar military background to Roddenberry. They had a lot in common. Mm-hmm. you know. So at first, that was a good thing, and then that soured, that relationship soured, particularly when Roddenberry sold the Star Trek novel for $400,000 and oh. proceeded to run it, rub it in uh, Livingston's face. Uh, that he, he got this deal for $400,000 to novelize their script. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he's the great bird, and the great bird sometimes uh, it's the nests nest. where he'd like. You know why the great bird sings. I do. That, that, it's my favorite quote. In the, at the end of the 50-year mission, the second book, we have this litany of people you know, talking about why Star Trek's great, why it changed humanity, you know, its impact on the world. And the last quote of the book is uh, Harold Livingston, he says, 
I don't get why everybody loves Star Trek. That's never hilarious. liked it, never will. It, it, I, 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 think, I just think everybody's crazy. <laughs> and that's the end of the book. <laughs> why wouldn't they want to keep him on Fantasy Island? <laughs> <laughs> but they did 13 scripts for the Star Trek II show. Well, yeah, they did 13 scripts. Right. And, of course, the first one, which chained Harold Livingston to Star Trek, was in Image, which ultimately became Star Trek The Motion Picture. Now, the story that's told officially by a lot of people is, oh, Michael Eisner loved the script so much, he decided it's too good for a TV series, it should be a movie. Not exactly. They couldn't sell uh, enough ads on the Hughes Paramount Network, and uh, it was going to be really expensive, and they abandoned that idea. Uh, you know, it's true that Star Wars opened and was huge and Close Encounters opened and was huge. So that reaffirmed the fact they wanted to do a movie, but it wasn't what killed the TV series. No. Um, but it's also true that uh, when Charlie Bluthorn uh, saw Close Encounters opening, he said, you know, damn it, this could have been us. Yeah, yeah. You know, because they, they had, you know, they would have been in production still and they would have finished the, you know, the uh, Planet of Titans in time for that release yeah. date. And to hear how Livingston tell it, you know, Roddenberry would keep rewriting him and Livingston would rewrite him. And at one point, two scripts went to Eisner, one written by Livingston, one written right. by Roddenberry. And, you know, basically he had a referee this fight. Right. And so they go in the Eisner and Diller's office and, and, uh, and Eisner says, one script is television, this script is a movie. Right. And, and, and he opens it up and, and it's it Livingston's Livingston. script and yeah. you know, Roddenberry is seething and Livingston is like, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know crossing his arms in triumph. Um, yeah. And, you know, which sort of set off the battling scripts. Absolutely. The famous stories about how, you know, in, tele- in, in, in television and movies, you, you generate colored pages as you do revisions throughout production. Mm-hmm. So, you know, blue, yellow, pink. And then with Star Trek, it wasn't just colored pages. It, it wasn't be, daily pages. Yeah. It was hourly, hourly pages. pages. So it would be timestamp. You know, Harold H. You know, H. L. Um, you know, two p.m. G. R. three fifteen. You know, I mean, this is how. I, I, you know, how, and then it would do. You know, Harold Livingston would rewrite Roddenberry, and Roddenberry would rewrite Livingston because you know to hear Livingston tell it. You know, the studio was really behind him, but they couldn't. You know, just show Roddenberry the door because they felt like he would take the fans with him. You know, they, they so. But they said, you're really in charge, but they never really quietly, right. quite empowered him. And, uh, you know, at one point Livingston, you know, quits and he tells the story about how he's brought back to Paramount and locked in Jeffrey Katzenberg's office. And he says, you know, he won't let him, gets him drunk, you know, and, and, and then Jeffrey comes in and says, you know, I won't let you leave until you, um, you know, agree to stay on the movie. And they offer him some ridiculous amount of money mm-hmm. um i think he was getting you know, like you know at the time he was getting like ten thousand dollars a week or fifteen thousand dollars a week to um rewrite in the 77 you know 78 to to rewrite this the script and so he said you know they basically and, and they promised him all this other stuff in terms of development right so he stayed but um it, it's just it's just it's crazy and if you read those in thy image those original scripts before it becomes mm-hmm. Star Trek Motion Picture. It's awful. The beginning of In Thy Image <laughs> is literally Kirk and Alexandria, who's Admiral Nagura's aide de camp, who's also Kirk's girlfriend, swimming nude in the San Francisco Bay. 
And Nagura is trying to reach him by communicator. And so he ducks under the water. And when he comes back up, he's like, I've just been grabbed by a sea monster. And he's like, I can't read you, Admiral. And, you know, he goes in to meet with Nagura. And then, of course, she's killed in the transporter accident. But His girlfriend. His yeah. girlfriend. And I love the description in the script or the treatment. It might I don't remember. It's been a while since I read it. Where it says, it's PG, tasteful nudity. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, oh, my God. And the script goes from there. I mean, at one point, Ilea wants to have sex with Kirk right. to see what it's like to be human. And, of course, instead of being V'ger, it's N-S-A, right. NASA. NASA. And the way that they get V'ger to go away, because there's no Decker at this point, right. is uh, they find these old 16-millimeter films from NASA that they blame for V'ger. <laughs> and, uh, or for NASA. Right. Uh, to, to, and, he, you know, NASA goes off having learned what he needs to wow. learn. Ali goes off. I mean, it's just... So it's there's so much of Star Trek, the motion picture in those drafts, but it's like everything bad about Star right. Trek, the motion picture, right. is in those early drafts of In Thy Image. Um because and again, that's all. How, how did Alan Dean Foster get a story credit? It's based on a script he wrote for um, Genesis Two, right? Uh, Robots Return, right? Which is basically the Changeling. So I don't know. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the same story. But oh my God, I, I wish I had example. But um, after Star Trek: The Motion Picture was released in theaters and did a huge amount of business. Mm-hmm. But the profit to Paramount was minimal because of the co- the development costs right. and the cost of the movie, having cost to, of rushing the theaters. Having to do all this development work for uh, the God thing and for Planet phase of two. Titans and Phase 2, uh, it was all piled on the budget of Star Trek The Motion Picture, and so they had to pay for all that stuff up front. So they felt they dodged a bullet by like making some money. You know, would lightning strike twice? Right. Well, Roddenberry wanted to convince them that it would, and he began work on what is probably one of the most legendary unmade Star Trek projects of all time, which is um, the JFK, the unproduced JFK script. It is time in short. It is time in short for a new generation of leadership. All over the world, particularly in the newer nations, young men are coming to power. Men who are not bound by the traditions of the past. Men who are not blinded by the old fears and hate and rivalries. Young men who can cast off the old slogans and the old delusions. For I I stand here tonight facing west on what was once the last frontier. From the lands that stretch 3,000 miles behind us, the pioneers gave up their safety their comfort, and sometimes their lives to build our new West. They were determined to make the new world strong and free, an example to the world, to overcome its hazards and its hardships, to conquer the enemies that threatened from within and out. And we stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of the 1960s the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils, the frontier of unfilled hopes and unfilled threats. It is a set of challenges. It holds out the promise of more sacrifice instead of more security. The new frontier is here, whether we seek it or not. Beyond that frontier are uncharted areas of science and space, 
unsolved problems of peace and war, unconquered province of ignorance and prejudice, unanswered questions of poverty and surplus. It would be easier to shrink from that new frontier, to look to the safe mediocrity of the past, But I believe that the times require imagination and courage and perseverance. I'm asking each of you to be pioneers towards that new frontier. My call is to the young in heart, regardless of age, to the stout in spirit, regardless of party, to all who respond to the scriptural call, be strong and of good courage, be not afraid neither business made. As we face the coming great challenge, we too shall wait upon the Lord and ask that he renew our strength. Then shall we be equal to the test. Then we shall not be weary. Then we shall prevail. Right. Did he ever have a, a real title for it? No, it was always called Star Trek Three. Why is it called Star Trek Three? Because... He considered the original series the original Star series Trek is one, one. Uh, motion picture two, mm-hmm. and that Star Trek two was three. So anything you see with the JFK script is um, Star Trek three. Is Star Trek three? That, that's not confusing. Have all. you heard? When was your first? Did you like as a kid? Did you remember in Starlog when they talked about development on Star Trek two? All I remember is somebody saying that there was a, a script or a story that Roddenberry had written that involved JFK, and that it ended with Spock walking up to JFK's motorcade and shooting JFK with a phaser and killing him. Yeah, that, that, that's what I read. That was in Starlog. And, and that, I don't know who had reported that or said it. And having just read for the first time the the Star Trek Three script, which I think ought to be subtitled, They Ate Spock's Mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, for anyone else who might have read it. Um, because poor Amanda does get uh, consumed. Now, you see, you see in that uh, treatment, because there isn't a script, there's a, a very extensive 80-page treatment, that that story about Spock shooting K- JFK on the grassy knoll is apocryphal. Right. That's not how that script ends. Spoiler alert! What? <laughs> um, uh, that uh, Spock does not uh, not kill JFK, but... He's it, not on the grassy knoll. It does indeed revolve around um, Ken- the Kennedy assassination, or, or the, the lack thereof, because, right. of course, in Roddenberry's JFK treatment... Um, the the arrival of the Enterprise pursuing a Klingon ship right. uh, that has traveled back in has traveled back in time um, somehow through the Guardian of Forever, which is what right. like fifteen feet across. The Klingon ship and the Enterprise both travel through the Guardian. Well, but what's described. great is that the Klingon ship is somehow. I'm stuck in there like a bad bowel movement or something, <laughs> so they can't get past it, and uh, so they have to destroy the scout ship in order to get back in time where the Klingons are screwing with Earth history. Um, and and then, of course, because the Klingon shows up and the Enterprise is detected by U-2 spy planes having crashed somewhere in Canada, mm-hmm. um, Kennedy doesn't go to Dallas, and it changes the future. And now the Enterprise has to make sure that history resumes. they got to fix the past. they got to fix the past. And, you know, Kennedy must die. Dun, dun, dun. You know, it's like... <laughs> I don't know how he ever thought that this was a viable premise. I will say this, though. I mean, I, I agree with everything you're saying. There was a moment, though, reading, uh, you know, reading the outline where 
Kirk beams into the Oval Office and there's JFK. And just for a moment, like imagining that scene, it, it felt very original series. It felt very classic Trek. Um, you know, there were a lot of problems clearly with the with the story as a whole, but and it also had echoes of, uh, you know, Savage Curtain, clearly, uh, Tomorrow is Yesterday. The time travel in it didn't really make any sense. I, I mean, their solution in the end was to go even further back in time. And, and how did that fix things? It, it was all kind of like hand-waved away. Well, we, we have, uh, we're going to read an excerpt from that. We have Gene here to share his pages in which this is a scene in which Captain Kirk uh, finds himself in the Oval Office with... President John F. Kennedy. I believe these are the right pages. I, I, I'm looking through here, and I can't remember very well uh, the, the script, but I, I'll read what I have here for you. At the Starship, a television news flash is picked up by Uhura and put on Kirk's viewer. It announces that an intelligent, non-human life form identifying itself as a representative of another planet has just landed an airline jet at the National Airport next to Washington, D.C., the alien has given assurances that the jet's missing crew are guests aboard the alien's hidden spaceship and will be released once the alien's safety is guaranteed. Meanwhile, the alien is requesting an immediate meeting, fully televised with satellite transmission abroad, with the head of the United States government. The television newscaster adds that the subject to be discussed is rumored to be of such immediate worldwide importance that the president is already en route to the airport meeting. And uh, later on, we have uh, we I have. At one point, that visitor is a Klingon. The visitor that has Klingon. escaped from incarceration on the Enterprise and is now going to trade secrets uh, 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 from the future yeah. with Te- technological technological secrets. secrets, which has caused great uh, consternation. Uh, among the Soviet Politburo, Khrushchev is deeply concerned about what the Klingons are going to do, and uh, and 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 warns that any meeting with the alien uh, he must be a part of. That that the United States cannot meet or accept technology from the Klingons without the Soviets being privy to this. So at this point, uh, Kirk beams into the White House. Yes, and uh, we hear an alarm. It has been sounded. I'm sorry, Gene. Would you continue this? Yes, give me the paper there. An alarm. It has been sounded by the butler, Daniels, who has peeked in on hearing voices and has seen a strangely garbed man saying strange things to the president. Kirk quickly raises his communicator, calls Scott to lock in on his position. The rapid approach of running feet can be heard. Two to beam back, says Kirk. A surprised Kennedy dematerialize. Their swirling transparency fading away as guards and aides race into the White House Oval Office. They arrive in the Starship transporter chamber. The young president hears Kirk admit that he has no choice but to agree to some trade. He must have the isotope so he can at least make an effort to set history on its right course. Kirk smiles, apologizing that he means the course which seems right to him. He apologizes for bringing Kennedy here so abruptly and introduces him to the ship science officer, Mr. Spock. If Kennedy cares to stay and become acquainted with the technology they were discussing, Kirk believes he will find Mr. Spock very helpful. As Kennedy is shown through the vessel, he is amazed to find himself relaxing. This is one of those rare times in a president's life in which there is nothing he can do to change what is happening, and there are no decisions he must make immediately. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. All that's missing is uh, Kennedy recognizing 
Spock as this Boston cab driver who, right. you know, from years before. <laughs> That's so funny. It could have swallowed its own it, it is interesting, though, that, that people keep returning in, 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 in science fiction, fantasy, horror. Stephen King wrote a book about the prevention of the Kennedy assassination and the revival of the Twilight Zone in the mid-'80s. There's mm-hmm. an episode by, um, uh, it's called uh, Profile in Silver, where I actually remember. who's in that is, um, is Garrick. Andrew Robinson. Andrew Robinson, yeah. And how people keep this idea of, of preventing the Kennedy assassination or keeping it going is so ingrained in the minds of people from that era. Right, because it was the it was the turning point for, you know, anyone who was alive in that time. It was, you know, from the before time to the after time. Well, it was and, also, you know, the prelude, you know, it was the end of the new frontier and which way would America go? Would it right. continue on you know, the spirit of Camelot, you know, or and, and the New Frontier would go in a different direction. So it feels like, you know, certainly a certain generation, you know, this this crucible. And uh, it is very interesting because, of course, Star Trek is so influenced by, uh, and particularly Captain Kirk, mm-hmm. by the by John F. Kennedy. I mean, it's interesting, there's a passage we didn't read where Roddenberry describes uh, Kirk's first meeting with Kennedy and how he finds the young president arrogant. You know, and it, it's so interesting to sort of get uh, insight into the mind of, of Gene Roddenberry and how he interprets the, these figures. You know, if we go back to the very beginning of the story, it's very much mired in, in Star Trek canon because, of course, it starts with the Enterprise um, discovering coming back to Earth and finding the entire fleet obliterated. Right. Uh, and he makes a big point of finding there are bodies um, floating through space, some uh, in spacesuits, others not. And some are naked. Some tastefully for a PG movie. <laughs> <laughs> and when they return to Earth, they find um, that it is uh, um, basically a planet uh, ravaged by um, uh, barbaric uh, people who are living like it's like something out of Land of the Lost, and uh, they are basically Battling slaves puppets. of the um, of the Klingons. Right. And a Klingon ship is coming into the system and they hide it. They're ju- they beam down just in time to see Sarah killed and Amanda raped, which I don't know where that came from. I mean, that's just like, I, you know, who thought that was a good idea? Um, but I guess it was so to give the impetus for even for, you know, for Spock right. to feel the horror of what's going on. And in fact, it bookends it because at the very beginning when the timeline is restored and Spock sees Sarek and Amanda, there's a tear. You know, he feels emotion at seeing his parents who he's reunited with. But um, then they they realize that the Klingons, um, basically, uh, the reason they've been leading the fleet to a certain part of the galaxy is to distract from the fact they've located the Guardian of Forever, and they're going back in time to the Guardian that changed the past. The Enterprise puts it all together and is the only remaining fleet. Not right. the only sh- fleet in the, uh, ship, ship in the, the system, yeah. uh, the Quadrant. They are the only ship left after right. this Klingon massacre, war, whatever, and they go back to the Guardian planet, which is where, as you said, somehow they slipped through the donut uh, <laughs> into the past. Incredible power. It can't be a machine as we understand mechanics. And what is it? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. What are you? I am the guardian of forever. Are you machine or being? I am both. 
and neither. I am my own beginning, my own ending. I see no reason for answers to be couched in riddles. I answer as simply as your level of understanding makes possible. It's an expanding donut. <laughs> well, with all the power that the Guardian obviously has, uh, you would think that somehow it would have been able to accommodate ships. Yeah, well, I think it creates some kind of wormhole and sends sure. off a temporal That's not what happens the Guardian the says in City on the Edge of Forever. The Guardian says it's designed to present history in this fashion. You have to deal with it. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes rewrites happen. Yeah, well, speaking of rewrites, uh, maybe Gene can sort of tee this up for us. How does this begin? How does this story begin? Well, I, I'm not exactly sure because you didn't give me any pages with uh, numbers on them, so I can't really see where it begins. Um, but I have, uh, let's see here, we have here a montage of battles being fought in space and on strange alien landscapes. Klingons are attacking the far-flung colonies and outposts of Earth and other Federation planets. The savagery of these attacks is frightening. The cruelty is such that we are happy not to see more de details of it, and I'm sure the MPAA is happy as well. <laughs> the prologue tells us that on start date 8113.4, the Klingon Empire suddenly attacked the United Federation of Planets. The toll was so heavy that Earth and its federated neighbors finally gathered the combined forces of Starfleet for a strike at the heart of the Klingon Empire itself. At this point, the Klingons retreated back into their own territory and sued for peace. Yeah, it's interesting because what ends up happening is um, uh, once they go through uh, the Guardian uh, and are damaged, um, they crash in Canada, small town in Canada, um, where they literally are found by the Canadian Royal Mounties. Um, but uh, um, what, what's interesting is that they, they, always now, get their they now need to restore the, the, the power, which they need these isotopes from right. uh, the, the, the government. Um, but it's a U-2 spy plane that finds the crashed Enterprise in the wilds of Canada. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's just... It, it, it's it, very it, odd. It's very it's odd. Very I odd. mean, was the, that your response? Yeah, the, the script to me felt like it's interesting in that this was, you know, potentially the second Star Trek feature film, and the first one obviously had, you know, massive growing pains. But it felt to me like they were still struggling to figure out, or at least Gene was, what a Star Trek movie was, because this right. really felt to me like the kitchen sink. I mean, there is massive war with yeah. the Klingons. There's alternate Earth with barbarians you know, eating Spock's mom and all of that. And, and, the, and this movie doesn't even like really begin until they go through the Guardian. But he and, is and addressing a lot of uh, some of the negativity about the first film, about it being slow cerebral and, and not, slow yeah, and totally. not action packed. But so this flips it on the end. Totally. And, but it like turned it all the way up to, yeah. you know, 11. This goes to 11. But he's servicing like <laughs> every fan favorite. Like, Absolutely. Oh, you didn't like the last one? I'm going to give you Sarek and Amanda. I'm going to well, give the you The Guardian be Forever. I'm going to give you Klingon War. I'm going to give you time travel. I'm just going to throw it all in there. Uh, I mean, and then, yeah, I mean, the scene with Kennedy is literally right out of Tomorrow's Yesterday yeah, where they yeah. beam Kennedy up to the ship and, and then they explain to him that, you know, he's going to die and so he has to go back and, you know, Kennedy's like, well, maybe this timeline will be different or, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. but he has to come to terms with the fact and he decides that he's going to go back because this positive, bright future is more important. Even if he does die, he's willing to make the sacrifice. So it, it's, it's, <sighs> I, I just, I, I okay, don't so, mince words. So here, what do you really think? Here's, here's my question to you, Rob. Had this film been made, you know, Let's talk about alternate futures. 
would we have next generation Voyager Enterprise? Would we be sitting here talking about Inglorious Trexpert, or would it be a weird footnote in Star Trek history? And um, it would be the Highlander two <laughs> of sequels, and and there, all, but then there was a Highlander three and a Highlander TV series. But no, I I, <coughs> I think probably not, because uh, I think Star Trek at its best, uh, not only when it's allegorical and 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 somewhat uplifting Star Trek is it's simple Star Trek usually is it's best when it's telling a simple story that it can examine from many different directions and this story is all over the place it's all kinds of stories I mean a Klingon Wars that's a story in itself Mm -hmm. Uh, meeting John F. Kennedy could be a story those ramifications and we've seen all of those as single episodes before and so why throw them all into this in into a movie? I mean the real I think the real shame about this whole story is is what is it really about? Mm-hmm. You know, why are you going to right. visit John F. Kennedy again? What's the point of having Kennedy as a character? What are you learning? What are we gleaning as an audience? Did I mention that I've met Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, I, I mean <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's just it's just uh, you, you, you you I mean Look, how can you scream like James K. Polk? <laughs> I, I think this this smacks of of I think Roddenberry was desperate to hang on yeah. to to Star Trek and was was wanting to do something so grandiose for the studio that he would not be removed from power. Well, you asked if there was a title, and there is. I, in my mind, it's Star Trek Cliff Notes because it, it's it's well, we take the Klingon War from Aaron to Mercy, and the time travel city on forever, and the you know uh, the the contemporary man who's brought up to the Enterprise in tomorrow's yesterday. I mean, there's not an original concept in the whole movie, and I mean, there's a and, and there's a funny little. Um, tag at the end, and again, we're not giving a spoiler alert because it's never going to be made, right. nor do I think this treatment will ever be disseminated. I mean, there's never been talk of novelizing it or doing a comic book mm-hmm. adaptation or anything, but at the very end, you know, you say, oh, thank God, nothing in the timeline changed, uh, except that it, it now turns out that McCoy has a wife, right? you know, <laughs> which comes out of nowhere. <laughs> well, it, it's, I, I think what's really interesting, we've now seen both with Star Wars and with Star Trek the original creators of these franchises that have become literally global touchstones for multi-generations of people. I, I think the original creators, Roddenberry being one, George Lucas being uh, another, they they become prisoners of their own success in, in the sense that I don't think they either, either, either Lucas or, or Roddenberry really understood why this global phenomenon came to pass. Right. Why did Star Trek become what it was? How did it touch people in so many so many different ways and and would continue on? And I think that Roddenberry didn't know why. You know, and he he kept trying to figure it, figure it out. But both Star Trek the motion picture and this are rehashes. Mm-hmm. They're essentially concepts that were dealt with before. It's not like they're original concepts. It's so interesting. I hadn't thought about this before, but what you're saying is what Gene is trying to do is, is is find good Star Trek and re- remake it because he thinks that's what fans want. What Nick Meyer did was he remade you know, like Moby Dick and remade it. You know, he's like, okay, I don't know anything about Star Trek, but I know a lot about literature, and I'll tell you about it if you ask me. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I'm going to do you know Moby Dick, or I'm going to do you know I'm going to do Horatio Hornblower, which is what Gene did originally. Was doing, yeah. yeah, so I think that's really interesting. 
because yeah, the creators, you know, end up saying, you know, I have to, I have to protect the franchise, so I'm going to be safe. It was the same thing that you know, you know, Lucas did with the Star Wars prequels. You know, I have to, I have to, I can't paint outside the lines. And then you have somebody like Meyer who comes in, who's not just painting outside the lines. He's like throwing paint on a canvas, and it ends up wherever. You know, which is why there's stuff about that movie that's brilliant, and there's stuff that's incredibly frustrating. Well, I also think that that. when you when you have these franchises, the you've got to go back and look at at for instance the Horatio Hornblower thing, Star Wars. You've got Seven Samurai. You've got Hidden Fortress. What I've never understood is when people are going back, and they keep going back to these franchises. Why doesn't for, to make a Star Wars movie? Why aren't they going back to Kurosawa? Right. Why aren't they going back to Throne of Blood? Mm-hmm. Why aren't they going back to these other things and basing their storylines? On the on same those, things that the original was yes, based on. on those things. They're, but yeah. they're, they're not. They, they go back into the franchise itself and start picking things out right. when they're already a copy of something. You can make the same argument about Star Trek. That's the same thing. Why it's the are same they going back to, to mine Star Trek when you should be mining, you know, Hornblower and, and, and you know, the same things that inspired, um, you know, Gene, Forbidden Planet, you know? That's, that's, it's always been frustrating. What, what ends up happening is that the fans might not understand why, but then the, the very audience that you want to embrace these things become somewhat frustrated with it. And, and because the, the people that are making it are not, they're not doing what the creators did in the first place. Right. And they're just ripping off. You're, you're, yeah, the you're wrong getting stuff. copies. Of, <laughs> and unless you're Quentin Tarantino and can blend things around and, and remake them, um, the way he does, he takes these things in and puts them in a blender and carries them back out again. People always are going back to the wrong things to emulate, and this this is an example. Well, of that. wouldn't it be great if Quentin Tarantino's Star Trek was JFK Trek? He could take this treatment and do it. That's, could you imagine who he would cast as Kennedy? <laughs> Peter Fonda is JFK. <laughs> you know, it's like. Yeah, I, I, it's it's just very. It, it, in a way, it's sort of disheartening that you're not going. You you want the creator of Star Trek to have come up with, you know, something brilliant, and and how to go back to that is he should have gone back and read Hornblower. Well, again. Mike Friedman, the the Star Trek novelist, talks about that when he was tasked to adapt the God Thing as a novel for Star Trek's 25th anniversary, and he said he was so excited because Gene was and remains an idol of his, and when he read the material that existed on it, he was heartbroken because it's just it wasn't very good, and eventually. You know, the, it never came out because um, between Majel and, and Gene's lawyer and the estate, it just never, nobody felt it reflected well enough on Gene or, or, mm-hmm. and that, or, yeah, and then Michael took too many liberties. And so it, it never happened. Um, but, you know, I think because I think, look, I, Gene, you know, was, was in a, you know, sort of in a box from Star Trek. You know, it's like, he tried some really interesting things outside of Star Trek that didn't work for one reason or another. And so he kept coming back to Star Trek. So it was frustrating, I think, for him as an artist. And, you know, he had lost sight of what it was about Star Trek, I think, that had not only made the fans fall in love, but him fall in love with the concept in the first place. You know, I would love to see, I mean, speaking of unfilmed tracks, I mean, I guess the, I imagine the novels have touched on this, but. You know, in the canonical timeline between Star Trek, the motion picture, and Star Trek Two, mm-hmm. there's like seven or eight years, right. and I think there's been, you know, theorized that there was another five-year mission in there that right. they w- warped off to at the end of the first movie right. that we never got to see. Yeah. yeah. You know, now granted, we don't have our, you know, our cast anymore, but that it, to me is like, I would love to see something set mm-hmm. on that ship with those, with those characters in those pajamas, which I love so much. <laughs> well, there are novels. 
Right. There, there's, there's a, you know, I, there. Christopher Bennett wrote a novel called uh, Ex Machina, mm-hmm. which is set after the motion picture, and it returns to Yonata from Is the World. Yeah, well, I know what it's oh, from. from <laughs> I'm just. Uh, I, I'm it's right. actually. You, very... you, had, you had to let me finish rolling my eyes before you <laughs> interrupted. No, it was really. It's really interesting. It's about when Yonata gets to the destination that it was programmed to go to in the first mm. place. Great. And, and you know, it's, I know. That, that's what I want to see more. But of. there has there. Have, but I but I agree with you. I mean, I I think that there there is that idea that the Enterprise did go off on a, on another five year mission and. And, and I, we never got to see it. No. Yeah, I, I've I've always you know wondered what you know how that went. But that was what was interesting about Phase Two is that it would have been the second five-year mission. Now, obviously, that would have predated Star Trek: The Motion Picture. But I would have loved to have seen it. Although, I think every everything that we've seen and read about Phase Two kind of points out that it would have died quickly. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the Child, which was a script that they had done, was remade for Next Generation mm-hmm. with Troy instead of Ilea, yeah. um, and it's not good, you know. Um, also, uh, Devil's Due, which mm-hmm. is a goofy, guilty pleasure on Next Generation. It's no mega glory, Grant. Can we go back and do the guilty pleasure episode again? <laughs> because well, Devil's Due, oh, Devil's Due is a total right? guilty pleasure. That's probably my <laughs> only guilty pleasure from Next Gen. From the gates of hell comes the ultimate evil. Who are you? The devil. A demonic power terrorizes a peaceful planet. These people are all convinced that their world is coming to an end. And a deadly game of seduction could steal Picard's soul. I can do anything for you, Captain. Your life is in danger here. Enterprise, come in. Your ship is gone, Captain. Duel with the Devil on Star Trek The Next Generation. I, I I totally agree with you. I thought that was a hoot, the Klingon devil, and it's a one way to do religion on Star Trek. I thought it to was do it right. Well, I think we ought to do another episode on uh, another guilty pleasures episode. But More I think, guilty pleasures. But I think we also need to do a uh, an unfilmed a second part of unfilmed Trek. Oh, are we done? Because I, I think we're we're coming rapidly up on the end of this podcast. Wow. Well, okay. Well, then this is what I want to say before we do that, because I think for part two, we should talk about, um, we'll talk about the Academy years, and of course, we'll talk about Eric Jenderson's uh, Star Trek The Beginning. Um, and the original Star Trek Three treatment that they well, were that, making. Well, that I actually want to talk about now. I, I was just going to say, mm-hmm. before we do that, since I think it's part and parcel part of this, mm-hmm. uh, this is not exactly the same thing because there was a treatment that Hart Bennett did called Return the Genesis. Now, ultimately, a lot of that made its way into Star Trek III. Right. So it's not technically unproduced Trek, but it was incredibly different and a hell of a lot better a than lot better. the search for Spock. All that they've loved, all that they've fought for, all that they've stood for, will now be put to the test. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. The word, sir? The word? Is no. I am therefore going anyway. You do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Engage auto systems. Clear all moorings. Cleared, sir. One quarter impulse power. Someone is stealing the Enterprise. Warp speed. Bring on Bird Appraiser. She's arming torpedoes. Shields up. The shield's not responsive. Fuck! We're a sitting duck. Join us on this, the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. 
the adventure continues. Rob, can you just tell us a little bit before we wrap things up what Return of the Genesis to was? Your well, one of the things, there, there are two things about Return of the Genesis that I loved because I had read the, this treatment before the movie came out. One is that the revelation that the Genesis device exists and it, it's out there has caused a galaxy-wide turmoil within the Federation. Mm-hmm. And the Vul- Vulcans are angry and they want to secede from the Federation because of this monstrous technology right. that they, and so all of the stuff with with Sarek actually happens on Vulcan, in that original treatment, mm-hmm. and everything is a mess, and uh, so the stakes are much higher. They're not just saving Spock; they're going to they need to save the Federation. Right. And then the other thing that happens in that script is it's all about the Romulans, and the Romulans mm-hmm. have set up they have dis- the Romulans have discovered dilithium on the Genesis planet. Right. And they set up a mining operation. And that's why there's a bird of prey. Right. And and this is the thing that bothered me the most in right. Star Trek history is that the reason there's a Klingon bird of bird prey, of prey. is because it was a Romulan bird of prey that they were de- that they had yes. designed. And and Spock, the the developing Spock who's developing along with the Genesis planet, is whacking the mining team, the Romulan mining team, is killing them off. Mm-hmm. And they have a bird of prey, of course. Right. And that's why it was designed. Doesn't but, that make you crazy? And it, it changed Star Trek forever. Yeah. The Klingons never had bird. No. The, that was the wrong. The thing about it is, do you think here's here's what bothers me the most? It, it's always bothered me. I love Leonard Nimoy. I love Spock. He's one of my favorite fictional characters of all time. But the real Leonard Nimoy didn't know the difference. He's like, what's right. a bird of prey? You know, ILM probably built the model. It was already approved. Sure. And they go, ah, hey, we're going to change it from the Romulans to the Klingons. Leonard Nimoy is not thinking to himself, a bird of prey. That's what, in Balance of Terror, we right. see that the Romulans, he doesn't think that. He How do you even go know from a Katinga class battle cruiser <laughs> in the motion picture to, and, and then in the Kobayashi Maru, to uh, this little bird of with, with his wings? Because, and, it's a Romulan ship. I mean, Leonard Nimoy is, is, <laughs> is its first movie. It's his first movie. The, the, the budget was obviously not very high. No, it wasn't. And, you know, ILM's like, you think anyone at ILM was going to be writing a memo going, uh, Mr. Nimoy, you know, well, these, this isn't supposed to be a claim. Because he wasn't sure. big on criticism. And one of the things right. about Leonard, we all love Leonard, and he's mentioned talent, but one of the reasons his directing career sort of did not continue apace, because, you know, after the success of Star Trek IV, he was a hot commodity. And then, of course, it was the Three Men and Baby, which was mm-hmm. even bigger, right? right? You, you say, okay, so what happens after that? You know, he does Holy Matrimony in New York Times, and 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 it got to the point of Holy Matrimony didn't even get a, a theatrical release. Um, the good, was it the Good Mother? Good Mother. The Good, the good Mother got re- released, mm-hmm. but he apparently did not work and play well with others. Well, mm. you know, he didn't take notes very well. He wasn't very super collaborative, and so you know, he, you know, when he had a couple of failures. You know, sometimes if, if if you're liked, you can get rebound from that. Right. But you know, Leonard, and he was a different person, I think, as an actor and as a personality and everything. But as a um, as a director, you know, he had an old school kind of John Ford, Billy Wilder, Billy not Billy Wilder, yeah. William Wilder thing right. about him, where it's like it's my way or the highway. And and there there was an element on the Star Trek movies that his value to the Star Trek movies as a whole, as an actor, mostly. And as a director, is what made people kowtow to him more on those films than right. they did in other places. Right, because they really felt like they could not continue the Star Trek franchise without Spock. Right now, that's a whole episode too, because 
I think that the ending of Star Trek II is so powerful. And it should have it, it's, it's stayed somewhat, that way. It's dramatically negated by him coming back, and you waste Absolutely. the whole movie just to get Spock back, you know, and not tell a story because all it's about is basically right. getting Spock back. You know, you you didn't need him at that point. You yeah. could have gone on without Spock, but we live in a business that's so risk averse. Right. You know, they, they, they you can't end the story, and there really isn't another great Spock story after Star Trek II. Three is not good. You know, four is fine. We talked. Mm -hmm. We've talked about that. You know, five. You could have told that story without Spock. It wouldn't have suffered. It may have even been better. Star Trek six is a good story for Spock, but it's still, you know, it, it's like it's still clunky. It's still clunky. Yeah. The and kind then of approach for me would have been you know, again a really difficult story to tell, and they just kind of barely touched on it. But like the, now, Spock was no longer the you know number one or Kirk second in command. That he had really, I mean, he was on the, on the, on the ship in the show, but right. he'd really come into his own and was you know already like this you know ambassador type. And seeing that conflict between Kirk was fascinating. And then they kind of brushed it under the rug, and everyone right. was happy again by the end of the movie. But to see a, a film where they're really you know at odds and and right. butting heads and have different goals, like in the Menagerie, yeah. Right. yeah. That could have been uh, an outstanding movie to watch these two friends that are pitted against each other for ideological reasons. Mm -hmm. um, well, what that, could have been? Well, that, in a way, that's, 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 that's real drama. With yeah. 2009, is they sort of like dislike each other, not for any specific reason. Right. And then and by actually the end, for stupid reasons. They're, they're, they're friends. Yeah. It would have been much easier, better for them to start as friends and then be pitted against right. each other, um, which is something that the Academy years... Uh, deals with, but we're, we're going to save that for another another podcast. Um, uh, so you, you you kind of feel that initial return to Genesis would have been a better picture. Well, it was a lot. The stakes were much higher. It was a much more I thought serious movie. Um, Though I remember the it's just a treatment. You know, it's not a script. The Romulan character. I remember the Romulan captain being this very elegant, very interesting um, captain. And then what was going on with Vulcan felt it just felt epic. It had a much bigger. Feel Star Trek Three to me, the the film Star Trek Three feels so small. All that all that other story is basically taken by a couple of lines from the Admiral at the beginning. Genesis be has become a galactic controversy. Right. What does that mean? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's, it was, it's all off screen. And it was really interesting because it really did a good job of taking the themes that that great scene in Star Trek Two when McCoy, Spock, and Kirk are talking about. Well, here comes Genesis. Right. You know, we'll do it for you in six minutes. Yeah. yeah. And and that was all a part of the the DNA of that Return to well, Genesis story. It, it really gets into that whole kind of George Kennan Cold War, you know, uh, Atchison, you know, all the uh, politics of mutually assured destruction, mm -hmm. and it gets into some really interesting areas which Star Trek Three does not. You know, no. Star Trek Three is a very clumsy movie. It's clumsily directed. It's clumsily acted. It's it's not a great movie. It has some great scenes, stealing mm -hmm. the, the Enterprise, of course, being you know a paramount among them. Um, and you know the thing is also Star Trek's only as good as its villain. And well, Khan is phenomenal. And God, in Planet of the Titans, we didn't talk about Phil Kaufman's dream casting Tashira Mafuni. How great would he have been as a Klingon? Really? Um, you know, by the time you get Christopher Lloyd, you know, as Hammy McHamstein in yeah. um, Star Trek Three, it just doesn't have the heft, you know, that some of these other iterations do. Well, it's it's interesting that they, I think they felt the need to throw in a villain. Star Trek has always been, unfortunately, the film series was always following trends. Like you have to do this. Star Trek Five had to be a comedy. You have to put, you have to put humor 
into right. Star Trek Four was successful in the comedy, and and because of Star Trek Two and the strong con villain, you have to have yeah. a, a, a villain. villain. Yeah. Whereas the political intrigue and 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 what was actually going on and the mystery of Spock, I think, would have been enough. To well, like that's a whole other episode again, because you know what you say, <laughs> Leonard. I thought said something very insightful. He's about Star Trek Four that what he's most proud of is there's no violence, there's no villain in that movie. Right. We're the villain. Twentieth century. Humanity is the villain killing off the whales. You know, that's an interesting concept. And that's why it's something I really like about that movie. Um, and, uh, you know, you you know, something like Generations didn't need, you know, a, a mustache twirling villain like, you know, as much as I, I love the, him as an actor, you know, to have uh, Malcolm McDowell hamming it up as Tolly and Solon. To so, Solon. Whatever the hell Solon. it is. I'm trying to... Sauron, yeah, you know. Uh, I see, whereas the whole idea of the Nexus gives you ample opportunity to explore interesting avenues potentially. Anyway, I, God, we could go off on a whole uh, thing, which and we, we have, sh- which we shouldn't. Um, <laughs> but um, look, I think it's fascinating to look at these stories that that haven't happened. There's so many more. Uh, uh, that we're going to talk about another time. You talked about some of the, the, the episodes that you were involved with that never happened. All the series have them. Even original Star Trek, there were two episodes at the end of third season that had the show been picked up for two more episodes. Shatner would have directed one. Right. Um, and it was a fascinating episode. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back and revisit this whole idea another day. of the unseen Star Trek another day. But I, I want to I thank um, Mike Sussman for being back with us again, Rob Burnett, um, and uh, of course you, the audience uh, for joining us because uh, you know it wouldn't be very interesting if we were talking to ourselves without drinks uh, <laughs> alone. If we had drinks, maybe that'd be okay. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Inglorious Trek or at Instagram at Inglorious Trexperts. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Um, if you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery, we hope you'll check out our new podcast, Disco Nights, with new episodes premiering every Sunday night wherever you listen to podcasts. And finally, a very, very special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge for making this show possible. Until next week, on behalf of Robert, Michael, Darren, and myself, just one more word of wisdom. In every revolution, there is one man or woman with a vision. May your way be as pleasant. Let's see what's out there. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.